morning. We, if you can believe it, are at the halfway point of this summer series in the Psalms. And what we've been doing is we've been, take, we've been trying to highlight, it's sort of a, a, a brief survey during the summer of the Psalms. We can't cover all 150, though we've invited you to read all 150 before we're done. But we're surveying them based upon themes, topics that seem to come up in this songbook, this uh, biblical playlist of poetry, prayer, and song. And we're in the midst of a new theme. We just finished looking at wisdom, and we're going to be spending the next week, three weeks looking at another theme that comes up again and again in the Psalms, and that's the concept of the Sabbath, of resting and abiding in the Lord. And it not only reverberates through this biblical playlist, it's sort of a centerpiece, it's sort of a foundational theme throughout the whole of Scripture. And many of us, if we've grown up in the church, even if we're new to the faith, somewhere along the way we've become familiar with the Sabbath, with this scriptural commandment to honor the seventh day, the Sabbath. But I tend to find that if we know anything about the Sabbath, we sort of reduce it down to this, this instruction as being nothing more than a restriction. We hear the Sabbath and we're familiar with it, but we reduce it down to this restriction against doing any work on a particular day of the week, the Lord's day, keep that day holy. But what I want to encourage us in these next three weeks is that if we listen carefully, I think the music of the Psalms can shift our understanding of the importance, not only of this biblical command, but this biblical principle. How we think and how we engage the Sabbath can be broadened as our vocabulary for it is expanded to include words like dwell, refuge, and flourish. So during these next three weeks, we're going to discover how abiding in the Lord can become more than something we have to do at least once a week. Practicing the Sabbath, we're going to learn, is the key to experiencing fruitfulness and contentment every day of our lives. Our exploration this morning begins with Psalm 90. It's one of the more familiar psalms of the Old Testament. These are words penned by Moses, one of the great patriarchs of the faith. In fact, the psalm that we're going to hear from this morning has the oldest lyrics recorded in this songbook. Think about that for a second. These words go back hundreds of years before David wrote anything or any of the other psalm writers. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 90, to prepare to hear excerpts from this song. Keep your Bibles open afterward. And let us welcome the newly married Heidi Logan as she reads to us from Psalm 90. The scripture reading for today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 90, verses 1 through 6, and then 12 through 17. It's found on page 413. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. 
May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heidi. Oh, you're good. No worries. If you have those Bibles open, and I really want to encourage you to keep it open, so if you closed it, go right on back to Psalm 90. You might notice, depending on how your Bible's organized or how much information it gives you, that this psalm begins the fourth book or division within the book of Psalms as a whole. I don't know if you have read the insert that has the reading schedule to get through all 150. It has a little introduction to the Psalms. One of the things that I tried to share with you in that is that the organization of the Psalms has been to sort of mirror the first five books of the, the Bible known as the Torah. And so this is the fourth division of the Psalms, and therefore, if you keep track in terms of your books of the Bible, this corresponds to the book of Numbers. And Numbers, if you haven't read it in a while, gives the census of when the Israelites left Egypt and again before they entered the land of Canaan and all that took place in between. Many scholars believe this song corresponds with the end of that journey in Numbers from Egypt to Canaan. And if that's true, then the setting of this song, to kind of appreciate what, where Moses is when he's writing and singing these words, it, the setting would be Mount Nebo, this mountain at the edge of the desert from which the tribes of Israel could look down into the land toward which they had traveled for so long. This is very easily, you can see it as Heidi was reading it, as you're looking at it. This is a song that's about perspective. Moses is looking forward into the land the people will call home, even as he is looking back on the path traveled to get where they are standing. You ever done that? You ever gotten a little perspective? You ever allowed yourself to have a little bit of perspective? Sometimes life has a way, there are certain kind of moments in our lives where where perspective just sort of opens up in front of us. I won't have have you raise hands, but... How many of us are at least sitting here, can we, can we remember if we're not there when we were 18? Can you remember the perspective of that moment, all your life being considered a child, legally, socially, and then all of a sudden at 18, you're suddenly on the verge of being considered in the eyes of the world an adult. The perspective of going from being a child to being an adult. We celebrate Heidi's marriage and Drew's marriage as well. They're different, they're different uh, marriages, but some of us in this room may have been blessed to be married, what say, 25 years? And all of a sudden, of 25 years of marriage, being married to the same person, a little bit of perspective on that time when you first said, I do, to realizing over 25 years what I do would really mean, what I do really looks like. Maybe for some of us here today, we have the perspective put upon us of of that experience of being a parent to becoming a grandparent. Let's say the perspective of 35 years, let's just pick a number, of, of raising a child to see that child become a parent of your grandchild. Talk about perspective in that in that journey. Isn't it that perspective that often leads us to be different as grandparents? To lead our kids to say, no, 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 you don't understand. They weren't like that when I grew up with them. They were meaner. They didn't do that kind of stuff before. The perspective of raising a child and seeing a child become a parent. Or for some of us, we're in the midst of working. Maybe we're near the end. What about 
45 years of working full-time. Maybe we've been blessed to work at the same job. Maybe we haven't. 45 years of working full-time, five days a week or more. The perspective. And for some of us here, we may have reached one of those ages, those defining ages. Let's uh, pick a number. 75. Anybody here 75? Anyone want to own it? All right. 75. 75 years of age. We, we live in a world where right now you read the headlines and there's lots of things to cause us distress, to cause us worry, to disorient us. And yet, if you've lived 75 years, if any of us get to that point, there also comes a place where you get perspective. You've lived through history. You've lived, they may be different through times like these. You've seen troubles like these, chaos and confusion like these. It doesn't make it any less, but there's a different perspective when you've been through different events and changes. This is a song about perspective. Moses most likely recorded these words near the end of his life. And if you don't know the math for Moses, that would be around his 120th year. (laughs) 75 years seems like a long time. 120th year of his life. The life of Moses, 40 years. His first 40 years as a member of the royal court in Egypt. His next 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. By the way, that's 80 where many of us say, I'm done. And yet Moses has got 40 more years to go. The last 40 years of Moses' life is in the wilderness. As the leader of the Exodus, one of the most defining moments in the history of faith, the journey from slavery to freedom. Talk about perspective, 120 years. Man, that seems like a lot of time. 120 years you break it up in the 40s the way it is, 40 here, 40 here, 40 here. That seems like a more time than most of us will probably get, doesn't it? And yet if you have your Bibles open, if you've been paying attention, as Moses sings, he realizes that in the span of all creation, in, the, in terms of the whole world that God's brought forth, 120 years ain't much. Hear that. 120 years ain't much. Moses puts it like this. A thousand years in your sight. 120 years times it by 10. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. You ever had that experience of a day that just goes by, gone by? You're like, where did the day go? Moses says, that's a thousand years, not 120, a thousand. It's like a day that's just gone by or like a watch in the night. Moses is sitting in this space of, of really just simmering in this, the fragility of human life. He just, he senses at this point in his life how life passes before we even know it. And it's out of this place, and part of why I want us to get a little perspective this morning, however we can, I want us to to kind of resonate with Moses, because if you're not in that place of perspective, then you can't appreciate, you can't understand. It's not going to hit you how this prayer wells up in Moses from this place of perspective, this prayer that wells up where he finally just cries out, Lord, teach us to number our days. That's a prayer that comes from perspective. Teach us to number our days. What's your number? What's your number? Moses was uh, roughly uh, 43,829. Mine, right now, is 16,090. 16,090 days I've woken up, gotten out of bed, breathed continuously, 
and lived on this earth. What's your number? When's the last time you counted? Imagine. Imagine there's a bank that credits your account each morning with $86,400. A bank that each morning credits your account with $86,400. It carries no balance from day to day. Every evening, it deletes whatever part of that balance you failed to use during the day. Bank that credits in your account $86,400, but it takes out takes away, it goes to zero at the end of the day. If you had $86,400, that's quite a sum of money that was in your account and you knew these conditions, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I would take all that money out. $86,400, thank you very much. I'd draw out every last cent, right? Anybody who would disagree with me on that? Thing is, each of us, we all have such a bank. It's called time. Every morning, it credits you and me with 86,400 seconds. Every morning, we're credited with 86,400 seconds. And every night, it writes off as lost whatever we've failed to invest to good purpose. It carries over no balance. I'm sorry, but there are no rollover minutes with God. <laughs> it allows no overdraft. Each day, it opens a new account for you. Each night, it burns the remains of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposits. And the clock is running. You know, the cute little analogy like that sometimes some of us if we get pricked by this because it kind of hits home a little bit some of us sort of retreat to this place you know and, and, and we, we, maybe maybe you're like me and we say you know in our busyness we say in our over with our overcrowded schedules we say when we hear like one of these little insights like that we tell ourselves you know you know i don't have a lot of time to give i'm a pretty busy person my schedule's packed i don't have a lot of time to give but the time i do spend with family and with friends let me tell you, that's quality time. I don't have a lot of time to give, but the time I spend with family and with friends, you can bank on it. It's quality time. You ever said that? You ever stopped to actually think about what you're saying? It makes no sense. It's a misnomer, right? All time has the same quality, doesn't it? Consider this second. Was it of higher quality than the previous one? Or the second right now? I mean... We don't talk about quality money, do we? If I offered you a $100 bill right now, would you turn it down because it was wrinkled and say, you know, I prefer the new Crisp $5 bill instead because it's a better quality? Right? Teach us to number our days, Moses prays. The awareness of how fleeting our lives are leads Moses to ask God to teach us to number our days, to keep the brevity of life in view. Beloved, our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not, are lived in the atmosphere of time. We all live a year at a time. 
a month at a time, an hour at a time, a minute at a time, and a second at a time. And yet, in case we, we get too far afield, in case we think that Moses is giving us some kind of time management seminar, Moses doesn't pray, doesn't, doesn't come up from within him. He doesn't say we should number our days. He doesn't pray for this just so we can manage our time better. Moses doesn't say, Lord, teach us to number our days so we can be more productive. Lord, teach us to number our days so we can be more efficient. Teach us to number our days so we can multitask. He said, Lord, if you've got it right there, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We may gain a heart of wisdom. We didn't read this part, but it's right there in front of you. If you read the whole of this song, you can't help but notice part of this perspective with Moses, part of his song is peppered with sorrow and lament. If you, if you have it right in front of you, you can see he openly speaks with regret. He openly speaks with regret of lessons not learned as he talks of secret sins, as he speaks of afflictions, as he, as he talks about provoking God to indignation, as he, as he openly talks about the inevitable subtraction of life that comes by being swept away in death. Consider where Moses is. When he sings this song, he's looking back over where he's been with the Lord as he looks upon the land, a land he will never enter. A promised land lost not only to him, but to a generation. A generation. Why? Why is it lost to them? Again, it's important to, to understand why. What Moses is getting at is this promised land has been lost to a generation because they were counting all the wrong things. They were counting all the wrong things. Let's understand the story behind Psalm 90, behind the song, to appreciate the math here. Through Moses, God had led the people of Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders. Ten plagues. We were in, in Exodus a couple years ago, remember? Ten plagues culminating with the parting of the Red Sea. All of this God had done. But do you remember the minute they were out, all the people learned how to count? All they learned how to count after all of this was their level of discomfort in the desert, the heat of the day and the cold of night. The Lord afterwards daily provided food from heaven. Do you remember quails by the flocks, sweet wafers called manna? But the people only learned how to count how many days in a row they ate the same thing. Do you remember this? God made himself constantly visible to his people, leading them with a cloud in the middle of a dry desert by day and a fiery pillar by night. But the people only learned how to count all the obstacles and all the enemies that surrounded them. They were always counting the wrong things. And it culminated when they were on the brink, at the doormat, on the precipice, about to cross the threshold of their new home, it all culminated right there. Spies, do you remember this story? Spies, Joshua and Caleb led them. Spies had been sent into the land and they returned with reports of a land just as God had promised all the way back to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, they even brought back, do you remember this part? They even brought back fruit to show them how good, how lucrative the harvest of the land would be. And in the midst of that report, they, report, they said, there's a sizable force living there in fortified cities. But they said, count on the Lord, count on the Lord. 
Do you remember what happened? Joshua and Caleb said, count on the Lord, but the people counted the odds against them. A murmur spread amongst the people. There are giants in the land. We are like grasshoppers in comparison. They will crush us. In remaining focused on the size of the opposition, the people once again counted the wrong thing. And so God, talk about the book of Numbers, God gave them a new number, 40. 40. 40 years in the wilderness. A year for every day the land was spied out and yet the people rebelled. 40 years to count your steps walking in circles, wandering in the wilderness. 40 years to count down until the moment when you pass away. 40 years to learn the hard way. You can be so close to what is promised to you and miss it and never actually arrive. Beloved, because they counted wrong, every person in that first generation, save Caleb and Joshua, died. One by one, their bodies were buried in the desert. Again, picture Moses singing this song. Moses, although he was older than the rest, He's seen men and women a fraction of his age die simply because they refuse to follow God and trust him with their lives. And so he writes this song for the living, for us, so that we learn how to count. Beloved, what are we counting? What are we counting? What are you counting? We often talk in our own modern vernacular about making it count. Make it count. But what are we really counting? Are we counting our grievances? Are we numbering our wounds and our scars? Counting things against others, how they wronged us, what they owe us? Are we counting our achievements? The size of our bank accounts, the number of zeros in our salary, the square footage of our home, the number of cars we own. In our day and age, some of you will relate to this, others will not. Are we counting the number of likes or hits we're getting in our social networking accounts? Are we counting how many friends or followers we have? What are we counting? And are what, is what we're counting matter? Does it really last? How much energy have we wasted? Have we wasted so much energy that maybe we've even lost count? Have we lost count of all the hours we've spent working overtime away from home just to get ahead? Have we lost count of all the days we've worried so much about pleasing others by trying to be perfect? Have we lost count of all the years we've let slip by while we hold on to a grudge, refusing to make peace with a family member or a friend or maybe even God? What are we counting? 
All that bitterness, all that anger, all that worry, all that stress. How many hours, how many days have been lost on things that don't count? Things that ultimately won't count. Things that in the end count for nothing. For nothing. How long will we wander in the wilderness? Walking in circles. Chasing after the wind. Are we just going to mark the time until we die? I've talked about this before, and it's something that we have to, I have to continually, God's word continually speaks into. We all of us have some kind of magic age where we think, that's it. Game over. I'm, just, I'm, in, I'm at the gate waiting to go to Jesus. I'm just marking time to die. Biblically, it's unsupportable. I, again, no tongue-in-cheek reminds you, Moses did his best work after he pushed 80. If we're still alive, if we have a pulse, if we have this day in front of us, then we have been given the gift of time. What are we counting? Are we just marking the time until we die? Or as Moses prays, do we want to gain a heart of wisdom to make truly, as we say, every moment count? Because, beloved, here's the key. Please, this is it. This is everything, okay? You see, what we are counting is what we are counting on. Whatever we're counting, whatever it is, what we are counting is what we are counting on. And only one thing, the Bible says, only one person can be counted on, and that's God our Father. Nothing else, nothing else is everlasting to everlasting. What are we counting? You see, I haven't mentioned them in a while. I've given you a little bit of a break, but they're there. They haven't gone anywhere, these old Kairos cards, you know. Some people are okay with them. Some people, it's like, like I say, they're not going anywhere. They're not everything, but this little square is a continual reminder of living into the very thing that Moses prays. Teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What does that mean? We gain a heart of wisdom by depending upon the Lord. That's what this represents. That's all it is. Whatever you want to call it, a Kairos moment, God shot, whatever you, however you want to take it. This represents encountering God, learning from Jesus, growing in the spirit. It's, it's depending, not on our own wisdom, but depending upon the grace of God to grow in wisdom. In many ways, that's the whole point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not about taking a day off. It's not about one day in seven. It's about learning to depend on God. And this simple exercise, and there's other ways to approach it, of simply asking in your life, what is God saying to me? Perspective, what is God showing me? What does God keep putting in front of me? And if we receive that perspective as Moses does, in light of this revelation, what am I being called to do about it? Every time you throw away this card, every time you ignore this question, we're just marking time. We're not living out of the time that God's given us. Moses' Moses' request, that prayer, teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom, is just another way of saying, teach us how to count on you, Lord. Teach us how to count on you, how to depend upon you. 
And in many ways, this, this, this beautiful prayer is a petition that amplifies the opening line of Moses' song. If you have your Bible open, the very first line that Moses sings, he's simply amplifying with this prayer. And that opening line is when Moses starts out by saying, the first words he says are, you, you, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses makes this declaration as a statement of fact, a statement of dependence. Since humanity has been on earth, Moses sings, we have dwelt, we have lived under God's roof, we have lived with God's presence. We can deny this. We can deny God all we want, and we live more and more more and more in a world that does, right? But Moses sings, it doesn't change the reality of the situation. Before the mountains were brought forth, he sings, or you had even formed the earth and the world, you have been our dwelling place. You sweep away people in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. But you, God, you are everlasting to everlasting. This is a statement of fact that Moses begins singing. But it's also when he sings it a confession of faith. Again, remember the setting. Moses has come to the end of his life. And he is looking upon the land he will never enter. Now, I don't know about you, but given that scenario, given that setup, it seems on all appearances that Moses has failed, right? 120 years of life, and what has he got to show for it? Failure. You didn't cross the finish line. He stands looking at a land he will never enter. He stands, and from my vantage point, his life, his dreams, his mission is going to be fulfilled by others, not himself. And yet, if you listen carefully to what he sings, listen to it. Moses starts his opening verse as his eyes drink in the beauty of the horizon that lies before him. Moses isn't singing failure. Moses recognizes he declares where his true home, our true home, remains. You, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Let me paraphrase this for you. You, God, you have been and remain our promised land. Moses isn't singing from a place of failure. Moses is singing from a place of clarity. Yeah, that's the promised land. But that simply points back to you. You're it. You're our promised land, a dwelling place. We don't use that word a lot. A dwelling place is a habitation, right? It's where we make a habit of living. It's where we call home. All of us, I hope, have some kind of roof over our heads, but you know as well as I do, wherever your roof is over your heads, that may be your house, but that doesn't mean it's your home, right? Your home is where you make it a habit of living, and it may not always be where the roof is over your heads, We have a saying, right? Home is what? Where the? Interesting saying, since Jesus says it a little differently. He says, where your treasure is, there your? What are you counting? Because what you count is what you're counting on. What you're counting is where your home is. And Moses says, you're it. You're my home. You're my home. You're our home. You've been our home from generations to generations. Beloved, where do we make our home? Where do we make a habit of living? Are we orienting ourselves? Are we making a living with God? Are we depending upon the Lord with the habit of our lives? 
Now, as I, as I say this question, the other insight that Moses gives us that's so critical here is that we can't do this on our own. We don't do this on our own. We don't make the Lord our home. We don't dwell in him. We don't make him the habit of our lives. Moses has seen this. He's lived the truth of it the hard way. And that's why he bookends this statement of faith at the beginning of this song. Lord, you've been our dwelling place from generation to generation. He bookends this at the start of the song with this profound prayer at the end of the song. Do you have it? Verse 17, he bookends it. A great and powerful petition to pray over our lives and our church. When Moses says, Lord, you have been our home. You've been our dwelling place for generation to generation. And then he ends the song by saying, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. It's so significant, it's so profound a prayer, Moses repeats it again, yes, establish the work of our hands. Let me break this down for you. Dwelling in the Lord, making God's presence our habit of living, numbering our days rightly so we may gain a heart of wisdom comes by the grace of God. Moses says it right there. He says it when he says, Lord, let your favor be upon us. Favor, grace, God's grace. When we submit to God's grace, when we let God's favor, by the way, notice the word he uses. It's let our favor rest upon us. When God's grace rests upon us, he establishes the work of our hands. I need, you need to hear this. The grace of God, the favor of God, the grace of God cannot rest upon us if we're running all around so hard trying to make a name for ourselves. The grace of God, the favor of the Lord, cannot rest upon us if we're laboring so long to make our own way in this world. Isn't that the problem of the first generation in the wilderness? Isn't that they're, what they're preoccupied with? They're so concerned with making a name for themselves. Who are we in this wilderness? Look at all these. We see who they are. Who are we? How are we going to survive all these things? We've got to make our own way here. And as a result, the favor of the Lord, the grace of God again and again cannot rest upon them because the Lord's not establishing the work of their hands. Beloved, we talk about living by the grace of God, right? We talk about it. We, that's, a, that's a big thing for us. But are we actually living by the grace of God? Because living by the grace of God means letting God, recognizing that God sets the agenda for our lives. It means Every day, understanding that our Father teaches us what to count. Our Father teaches us what to count. Our Father teaches us how to count. And that means our Father also tells us what to let go of. What are you counting? Are we willing to learn? Are we willing to receive God's favor, His grace? Because here's the thing. I want to make a personal confession it's not one that comes easy to me. And I know some of you are going to laugh because I'm very fixated on the fact that I'm in the mid of my, mid, midpoint of my 40s right now. And for some of you, you're like, that's a drop in the bucket. You're so young. I don't feel young. I have a 15-year-old son who prides himself on regularly telling me how old I'm getting. <laughs> on letting me know what I can't do. And I don't blame him for it. He needs me as a foil to be happy about what he can do. But I stand in the middle. I'm 44 years old. I've got my 15-year-old son breathing down my neck. And I've got my 65-year-old father who's smiling as he enjoys this journey I'm having with my son and who tells me, you have no idea what's in store for you later. 
And in the, in the humor of all of it, if I'm really, really honest, stuck in the middle, starts to, started silently, but it starts to speak into my soul. I start to actually say something I never thought in my life I would say. I start to say, because, you know, I'm 44, I'm getting old, and you know what, it's just going to keep going. I start to say, Chris Twightman can't change. I've lived 44 years of my life, and this is, Chris, this is going to be as good as it gets for Chris Twightman. Sorry, honey, Chris Twightman can't change. Sorry, kids, Chris Twightman can't change. Sorry, church, Chris Twightman can't change. <laughs> I all of a sudden start to hear that voice that says, you might as well just get set in your ways. You ever said that? You ever said that for yourself or someone else? They're just set in their ways. Sounds a lot like wandering in the wilderness to me. Set in your ways. No, Lord, you can't establish the work of my hands because you just don't understand. I'm set in my ways. See, people who believe they're set in their ways, that's the conviction I'm having, they can't let the Lord establish the work of their hands. They can't receive the grace of God because what is grace? Grace is dynamic. If I'm set in my ways, I ain't going anywhere. I'm static. I'm marking time until I die. How many of us live out of that frustration? How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you live out of that frustration of fi always fighting the clock habitually as a way of life? You know what I'm talking about? How many of us stay up late, then sleep as late as we can, and then rush frantically to school or work, gulping down an unhealthy breakfast in the car, applying our makeup or using a razor at the stoplight, talking on our cell phone at the same time? How many of us, that is the rhythm? You know, and I know, and for some of us as we're hearing this, you know, we look at Moses, and let, I mean, we would never say this out loud, but we're thinking it, so let's call it out. This prayer is unrealistic, right? This prayer is unrealistic. At best, what Moses is praying here is idealistic and naive. I mean, if I waited on the Lord to establish the work of my hands, I'd never get anything done. I mean, this is fine for Moses in his day. Can we all agree on this? This is Moses in his day. What did he have to do? He was in the desert. What stuff did he have to deal with? This is fine for Moses to pray in his day, but he, Moses doesn't live in the fast pace of today's modern world like I do. I mean, the Lord doesn't understand all I have to do. All I have to get done. Now, again, none of us would say that out loud, but you know darn well you think it. The Lord just doesn't understand. He needs to update his book to the modern world in which we live. I, I, I say it. I think it. If you do too, think about that statement for a second. Think about that. Even if we don't say it out loud, if we, if we think it, that means it's there. The Lord doesn't understand all I have to do, all I have to get done. Your creator, my creator, the author and sustainer of life, of all life as we know it, doesn't know what you need to do? The author of all life, the sustainer of all life, as we know it, doesn't know what you need to do, let alone isn't capable of supplying what you need? Moses has given us some perspective. I want to be clear from what Moses sings here. This is not saying we ought not to work. We're supposed to work. We're not, this isn't saying we shouldn't have goals. It's good to have goals. And it's not saying we shouldn't be ambitious. There's nothing wrong at all with being ambitious. Here's it. Here it is. But all of it, our work, our goals, and our ambitions must derive out of our dependence upon the Lord. 
Moses is asking God to establish the work of our lives because what we need more than anything else is grace. Grace leads to wisdom and the wisdom of learning to live in dependence upon God. Beloved, if all we're doing, all we're laboring for doesn't give us wisdom, not knowledge, wisdom, we aren't gaining anything. We're losing everything. We love in the church to say that it's by grace alone that we're saved. It's Jesus plus nothing else. If we really believe that, let's push it to its extreme, okay? That's not just in the moment when we embrace Jesus, when we embrace salvation. It's not just, it's Jesus and nothing else in order to be saved when we're baptized. It's not just grace alone to reach that moment. That means it's Jesus plus nothing else and grace alone for the entirety of our lives. The only thing we need is God's grace. The only wisdom we can get is from the grace of God. And yet we functionally live our lives as if we need a whole lot of other stuff. Many of us, well-intentioned, or raising our children. We've been raised that, you know, life, we got to, life's about experiences. You got to get experiences. Experience is important. You got to get knowledge. You got to get as much knowledge as you can. Beloved, Jesus plus experience does not equal salvation. Jesus plus knowledge does not equal salvation. It's grace. Experiences are awesome. Knowledge is power. Money and possessions and titles and awards can make us feel safe and secure. But wisdom, learning, to depend solely on God, developing the habit of living exclusively by grace, following and looking to Jesus alone is the only thing that saves us. To put this another way, through the lens of the principle of the Sabbath, when we work on our own, when we establish the work of our own hands, when that's our primary disposition, then resting and abiding the Sabbath means taking a break for or with God. When we're establishing the work of our own hands, it's like, Lord, man, I'm really busy. You don't have an idea at all of what I got to do. It really would have been great if you could have made more than seven days because there's a lot going on. But I'm going to do you a favor, God, in the midst of all the stuff I've got going on, which, by the way, did I let you know I'm really behind on? I'm going to take a break for you. I'm going to honor you by taking a day. Because that's just the kind of guy I am. I want to give a gift to you, Lord. If that's how we understand the Sabbath, we're establishing the work of our own hands. On the other hand, if by grace we let the Lord establish our work, then resting and abiding in God isn't taking a day off. It's not taking a break to or for God. It's inseparable. Our work and our rest are an interconnected rhythm with God. Think about it this way. In asking God to prosper the work of our hands, if we truly submit ourselves to that, we're acknowledging that God, by his grace, works through us. And by that same grace, our work can reflect God's will for us. I can't tell you how many people, and, and this provokes it, feel this disconnect, this conflict between their will and God's will for their life. I don't know what God's will is for my life. I'm not sure this is God's will for my life. You know what I would suggest to you, and this is just a starting point, is maybe instead of you continuing to try to establish the work of your hands, maybe you just open yourself up in a way you never have before to the grace of God in your life. To stop worrying, to stop planning, to stop anticipating, to stop figuring it out, 
and instead to truly receive, and we can talk more about this offline and what this looks like. It's radical to receive the grace of God. And when you get used to receiving, when you learn how to receive, when you learn how to count again to 10, then let the Lord establish the work of your hands. We do it the other way, right? No, I got all these plans. I got all these projects. I got all these priorities. Lord, here it is. Bless it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, was I not clear on my priorities? Was I not clear on the plans that I laid before you? Grace. If grace means I have to wait, pass. You know, we might even say that by God's grace, this helps you. We don't just let God, we don't just allow God to establish the work of our hands, but if we embrace grace, we become God's hands in the world. We suddenly find ourselves doing the work that matters, that leads to eternity. We find ourselves storing up treasures, as Jesus talks about, that do not rust or spoil in heaven. When God establishes the work of our hands, all of a sudden, something that seems impossible on our own, because it is, when God establishes the work of our hands, we can suddenly act justly. We can suddenly love mercy. We can suddenly show love for our neighbor and love for ourselves. Beloved, we don't give God our time. We don't give God our time, not one second, not one minute, not one hour, not one day. We don't give God our time because all time belongs to God. And therefore, all of our time belongs to God. Numbering our days means counting them. Learning to value the moments given to us by God and learning to count like this is what brings wisdom. The wisdom to let the core of who we are and the purpose we have in life to flow out of the grace of God in our lives. On our own, on our own, our time is short. On our own, the scope of our work is limited. But by the grace of God, we live in view of eternity and we have more than all the time in the world. By the grace of God, we have all the time we need. By the grace of God, the work of our hands can become more than just what we do every day. It can be more than just making a life. And too many of us, that's what we settle for, making a life. God didn't create you to make a life. God gave you life. You have no life to make. You didn't make your life. God created you to share the life you have been given. So stop making and start sharing. By the grace of God, we can do more than just make a life. We can do more than just build something that will disappear. We can, by the grace of God, build something beyond our days on earth. We can build more than a life. Through sharing the life that we have been given, we can leave behind a legacy. Amen. What are you counting? What's your number? God desires through each and every one of us. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. If you're here and you're breathing, you have time. God desires through every one of us to leave a legacy of faith, of hope, of love poured out into and out of our families and our friends and every relationship and encounter of our lives. This is what Moses prays. Not for himself, but for us. 
God, you've been our home. You've been our dwelling place for generations. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Oh, Lord, let your favor, your grace rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.